Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Rest of Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we're very excited because today we have Minette Batters, who's head of the National Farmers Union. Many, many things to be said about Minette. Um, one thing that's often said is that she's the first female head of the NFU in more than a century of its history. But much more than that, fascinating life story, starting as the daughter of a small farmer, basically an elite athlete, very, very interesting career in horse racing, then took over the family farm, rebuilt it, both in terms of suckler cows and a catering business. But I think more than that, it's the connection between that personal life and standing up for British farming at the most difficult possible political juncture, the fallout of Brexit, COVID, etc. So welcome, Annette, and thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So can we start right at the beginning? Um, I get the sense that you had a tricky relationship with your dad. And Rory mentioned your skill as a horsewoman. And I get the sense, given how long ago that was, I know you were very young, that you maybe could have gone a lot further, but your dad didn't really think that you should be doing that. And, and also that he didn't really think you should be a farmer. So you're right. It was a long time ago. Um, dad had acquired really serious head injuries. And for anybody that's lived with someone with really serious head injuries, it does affect their, their mood. Um, he was completely paralyzed down one side, but he, he was an amazing character and he was he was really loved in the farming community. He had a huge amount of friends at his funeral. There were 500 people that came to his funeral. But he, he had, uh, he was quite a lot older than my mother. He had pretty strong views about the role of women and and going into farming was not really one of them. So yeah, he was he was opposed to that. And of course I was a bit of a bull in a china shop back then. Probably some people would say I still am. And so we, we did clash, most definitely. And tell tell us a little bit about him. When when was he born? Was his father a farmer too? How did he move around if he was paralyzed on one side? Well that came. So he'd led a, a very, very colourful life. Um he he signed up to basically fight in the Second World War uh, underage. Uh, so lied about his age. Of course, she could back then. Um, went uh, to Italy and, and was, you know, training effectively in Italy. And so he led a colourful life. He had um, two very bad motorbike accidents. And of course, back then, you know, dealing with head injuries was 
was we don't have anywhere near the technology. What, what that was we have the colorful life? He did stuff after he left the army before he entered farming. Did he? Do other things? So uh, I think uh, his mother died when he was very young. That was difficult. So he's brought up by his grandparents. He, he had, I think, a very, very difficult early life. Um, I'm actually a fifth generation farmer. So his parents, uh, his grandparents uh, were all farmers. They all, all in Wiltshire? All in Wiltshire. But they'd, they'd owned a farm, actually not far from where we are. They'd then sold it in the Great Depression. And so he'd ended up uh, with his brother actually being uh, allowed to have the tenancy. And uh, he always reminded me that he had a note given to him basically saying, best of luck. You know, your brother's your got own. the farm, your sister's got a, a house and, and best of luck to you. And he went off and then was farm manager on an estate uh, in Gloucestershire. And why did he think you shouldn't be a farmer? I think back then and the world that he'd grown up in sort of through the 40s, 50s and early 60s farming was, it was all about heavy duty work. Uh, we didn't have the technology that we do now, you know, farming now, it's not about strength, it's about technical expertise really. Back then a lot of it was about really hard manual work and it was about strength. So he saw it as a physical job basically and, and not one for a woman to be involved in. But I mean, most of my relatives from farming backgrounds, my dad sort of yeah. escaped to be a vet. Yeah. But farmer's wife, that's a legitimate role in farming. Is that how he thought that maybe you should end up rather than being a farmer yourself? Well, that's an interesting one too, because obviously you know, I represent farming businesses and they are about men and women and, and often the women doing a, a lot of the running of the business. And certainly my mother was very much doing all the accounts. You know, she was mm. very much looking after the financial side. So uh, the other thing was that we were farming in partnership back then with my landlord. So it was a set time. He had a partnership that was going to last 25 years. He knew that would end and there was no succession. So that was another part of it for him that he knew it would end. And for my brother and I, he was all saying, look, we don't have a future here, so you need to think of something else. It seems a bit unfair to, to be talking too much about your personal life, but it'd be great to hear a little bit about your son. So I've got twins, my son George and my daughter Holly, who are both just started at, at university. And I, I think what Roy's alluding to is that you've spoken before about your son being quite seriously ill uh, at one point and possibly you worrying that he was actually dying. So when George was five, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is uh, an autoimmune disease. And it, it was an absolutely terrifying moment. Um, George owes his life and I will be forever indebted to our local doctor who actually came back out. I'd had a chest infection. I'd taken George to the doctor, presuming he had a chest infection too. And Dr. Davis had listened to George's chest and he said, well, he doesn't have a chest infection. Take him to A&E if you're not happy, but keep him warm and, and see how things go. And I was actually pregnancy testing cows at the time. And unbelievably, the doctor came back out. And I just don't think that would happen now. But he came back out and uh, he tested him for diabetes. And he said, no, you need to take him to hospital now. He doesn't need flashing lights. But actually, when I got George there, uh, his body had shut down. So his veins had collapsed. And there was a, a consultant there who finally, after two hours, managed to get a line into his ankle. And they said at the time, he's on the cliff edge. We hope through the night, keep him awake, keep asking him questions, he will step back. And we got to the morning and he had stepped back for the cliff edge. But 
those are life-changing moments. I can remember it as if it was yesterday. I remember every single person and our NHS, I mean, my family will be forever indebted. They are incredible. And tell us about the National Farmers Union. Do you feel like you're a trade union leader? Is that how you define yourself? you uh, I'm often referred to as a general secretary, which um, is is sort of amusing. We're, we're not a trade union. We're a membership organisation. So we're a trade association. Um, and we're uh, an organisation that is led by farmers for farmers, but we're backed by technical expertise within our staff. So, so that's what makes us, I think, you know, really powerful that, you know, we are working up policy wherever there is a problem. And it's that great strength of having farmer leadership, you know, the realities of understanding what our members are facing because you're doing it yourself. But having that technical expertise to really work on all those different areas, it's it's a great strength. And it's, it's always struck me as being one of the most challenging management jobs in the world because farmers, at least my experience as a member of parliament in Cumbria, farming constituency, are very, very independent. They've got very clear views about the world. They're running their own land. They understand their own land very well. They've got very clear views on what they want the government to change. And, you know, my experience as constituency MP was my farmer saying them, get into DEFRA, kick them, sort out what's happening on the milk price, sort out what's happening with Upland Farms. And you're right in the middle of that. All the expectations of these very experienced, well-informed men and women being projected at you to go and deliver for them. And presumably, you're on the receiving end of a certain amount of disappointment when you're not always able to achieve what, what people want. You're absolutely right. And I think there's a really fine line between representing and leading. It's it's actually really easy to represent, um, but what do you achieve? And so you've, you've got to represent because you want to keep representing as many members as possible. And, th- and that ultimately is how you get to see prime ministers and, and have effect, is having a lot of people behind you. But also, especially as there's been no playbook effectively for what has been happening in the last six years, leadership has been critical too. But that's a very fine tightrope to walk because you know if you lead and go too fast and you're not taking people with you, and as you say, we represent across all land areas or commodities from upland farming to lowland farming. And this is a massive time of change. So it's it yeah, it's it's not easy to get it right. And can I just drill in on one of those things that mattered a lot to me as a constituency MP, I often felt, maybe unfairly, that the NFU was often speaking for slightly larger farms. They were often talking about productivity, efficiency, big agribusinesses. And I was representing farmers who were, you know, had 60 cows in some cases, were farming 100 acres of land. They were incredibly proud, resilient, small family farms that really needed the investment in the uplands. And they shouldn't be compared to big agribusinesses on flat land in East Anglia. And I, I wondered whether that's something you're conscious of as the head of the NFU, that you sometimes are representing people with slightly different interests, that the language that the East Anglia farmer's projecting, which is all about efficiency and scale, actually contradicts with what my farmers are often thinking, which is they don't want a whole system based on efficiency and scale. They actually quite like the fact that the French and other Europeans were standing up for small family farms and trying to make very small units work. I hope, above all else, that I am living proof that you can get to the top of the NFU and lead the NFU. I I am a tenant farmer. I don't own any land and I farm 300 acres. 
So I hope that's proof um, that you know anybody can can lead the NFU. And I think the great strength of us is that we represent all sizes of business. We do represent some very big landowners, but our average member, our average member is below. 500 acres. So our average member is ultimately a small farmer. And I think what the people love about this country, and certainly what I love about the country, is the diversity of farming operations right across the country. And the fact that even large operations are usually a family unit, and small ones like mine and, and the farmers that you're talking about in, in Cumbria, you know, they're often very small grassland farms, but it's about representing everyone that gives us, I think, great strength. Now, you were Vice President of the NFU from 2014, and you became President in 2018. And during that period, from 2014 to today, there have been five Prime Ministers, mm -hmm. and there have been how many Agriculture Ministers? I've worked with seven in total. Okay. So what has that been like? There's you staying in post, and you have this never-ending carousel at the top level where you're trying to have influence and you're expecting leadership and direction from them. So how's that been? It's, it's been it's been beyond extraordinary. When I came in in 2014, David Cameron uh, was Prime Minister. Referendum wasn't even really being talked about. In fact, the first day I was in office, we headed off to Brussels um, for meetings with member states. Then obviously we had the referendum. And even in the last year, I've worked with three different prime ministers, all of whom I can say they, they could have come from different parties. They have had different priorities. And so it's it's been hard work, if you like, trying to keep up with them. It, there's always a fine line, which I'm sure you're both sympathetic to, of remaining at the table, not annoying anybody too much that mm. you get kicked out. No matter how much they're annoying you. Well, that's always a bit of a challenge, but it's you know it's about holding them to account again, trying to be pragmatic, put solutions forward, but ultimately, and this is where we've had to work with the media a lot, holding them to account, and you know sometimes perhaps the opposition hasn't held them to account in a way that I would have liked, particularly on on trade deals, our relationship with Europe, mm. the implications of importing food that would be illegal to produce here, you know these these are massive issues uh, for the country, and and we've we've had to challenge a lot through the media. I like this comment that you made that it's as though they were from different parties. I mean, I think the weird thing about the Conservative Party, and you see it very clearly in agriculture, is it's a sort of coalition of completely different beliefs. And it seems to me in agriculture, there are three different conservative beliefs that contradict and clash. There are people like me who are deeply committed to the idea of defending small family farms and the tradition of small family farms, even if it involves subsidizing them and not following economic principles. There's a second group around Michael Gove and Zach Goldsmith who are very tempted towards rewilding and very dramatic environmental policies. And then there's the third group of kind of free market absolutists who want to open up trade deals to Australia, flood the country with cheap food, and really couldn't be less interested. That's what I felt with Liz Truss in, the, in, in small family farms. Is, is that right? Or, am I, or are there even more dimensions to the weirdness of the Conservative Party? Is that the three or are there more? Or? I, I describe it very similarly, really. I mean, they, they sort of fit into to three camps, really, sort of boring technical government you know trying to trying to do the right thing but 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 boring then you have the nationalists who are all about brexit was pull up the drawbridge make everything here and then you have the liberalizers who it's made anywhere but here so those three things do not go together at all and we've almost seen that that play out in in real time you i know 
were for Remain. Not all of your leadership was for Remain. And the NFU sort of stayed out of the debate in terms of you put forward facts, you put forward data and so forth. Do you wish that you had been able to persuade the entire NFU to come out and actually really make the case for Remain? Because I get the sense from watching you, hearing you, reading what you write, that you do, you, you're almost on a par with me in thinking how big a disaster it's been. <laughs> it didn't need to be uh, a disaster, and indeed it can still be put right. So I did, you're right, I did take a public remain position, but that was on the information that we had. So the information that we had uh, was it's going to be the easiest trade deal in history, uh, uh -huh. trade deal with the EU. Uh, there will be a lot more money because we won't be paying that money into the EU, and there will be a bonfire of regulation. So if you are out there farming hard, working all hours of the day and night, those three things, well, it was quite appealing, wasn't it? Mm. There was no more information. You literally would have fitted it onto one side of A4. So on the information that we had, we took a decision and a position that it would be better and in our interest to remain uh, in the EU. But it was purely based on the lack of information. But the, but the Brexit side essentially went around the country saying the fishermen and the farmers are backing us because your voice didn't really get heard. And I just wonder whether you felt your, whether you regret that or whether you felt that your hands were tied up behind your back. You know, when you have a, a blank piece of paper saying life's going to be better to the boring old, well, you know, it's going to be really difficult and, and everybody else knowing the challenges that lie ahead, you can see why, you know, we got to 52, 48. Mm. Um, I think we could have campaigned as hard as we liked. We could have, we could have thrown everything at it. And actually, I think it would have made things worse. So we have left, but I, I don't think that needs to be a deal breaker. What we've had to fight off, and the worst thing I think that has happened is been this sort of double standards approach. But all I'm interested in is fairness. And the deals that we have struck previously, giving everything away to Australia and New Zealand, the potential of a US-UK free trade agreement, which would have imported hormone-treated so beef. Deals, and, those and, deals you mentioned, you would say were bad deals. New Zealand, Australia, bad deals. It wasn't a bad deal to do a deal with Australia and New Zealand. It was a bad deal to give everything in a way. So in 15 years' time, we will be fully liberalised. That it's a, it's, was the bad it's, deal. It's, it's a catastrophe, isn't it? Because we, we know this, because if we go back to the days where Australian beef and ultimately Argentinian beef were coming in, that wiped out British agriculture in the late 19th century. I mean, these places can grow things more cheaply at lower standards than we do here. And certainly for my farmers in Cumbria, that is a catastrophe. I mean, yeah, you've made progress in trying to put in legislation for future trade deals, but Australia and New Zealand alone, I don't know how you are supposed to compete on sheep farming. Mm. You're right. They have a completely different system. They have massive feedlots, grain-fed feedlots of 70, 100,000 animals in one area. You know, the average size of, of a beef suckler herd in this country is about 40 cows. It's, it's incomparable. Where they went wrong was putting dates in the diary. So you remember Boris Johnson agreed to shake hands with Scott Morrison uh, at the um, G20 and was in June. bullied and outmaneuvered essentially overnight. Scott Morrison was well, like, I'm not going to shake hands with you unless you sign And he just conceded it all. For any negotiator, you don't put a date in the diary. So, of course, the night before the G20, the discussions were taking place. There were the dying embers of that trade deal whereby they could have hung on to safeguards that would have made Australia have to work out its carcass 
balance, bring in frozen bone in, wouldn't be able to unbalance the, the carcass. All of that really matters. It's pretty dull policy stuff. But of course, Scott Morrison was able to say, look, if you're going to keep that stuff in, the deal's off. We won't be shaking hands tomorrow. So we had to capitulate. Well, we didn't have to, but Boris so Johnson felt he had to. Well, he wanted to shake hands the, yeah. the next day, so he did capitulate. So I, I have always felt and always will feel very angry that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson gave so much away. We could have done a deal whereby it was in our interests and it was in our farmers' interests and the people of this country's interest to do a deal that respected all of those things, and, and we didn't. We gave no, it away. It's probably not wise to trigger either me or Rory with the words Boris Johnson, but you appear to be yet another casualty of him constantly saying that he'd rather die than do damage. He actually said, I would rather die than hurt British farmers. But he's hurt British farmers. The manifesto commitment in 2019 made it very clear that Britain's farmers would not be casualties in trade deals. We always knew, and agriculture always is, the first chapter to be discussed in any trade deal. And it is always the last chapter to be agreed. We're a service-based economy. We always knew that agriculture was going to be the pawn in these deals, and it's played out in real time. And the terrible thing about it, which I think wasn't communicated enough to the public, is it's devastating for farmers, but actually it matters to the whole public, it matters in terms of our food security, because as we've learned through Russia, Ukraine, we can be very, very honest through COVID. We can be very vulnerable to not being able to import food. It matters profoundly for our landscape. I mean, almost regardless of what people are eating, the British public are deeply in love with this farmed landscape and the way that our traditional landscapes in places like Cumbria look and feel. And the conservatives who are meant to be protecting things have basically taken an axe to that and are going to cause a situation in 15 years' time where less now, where we're not going to have that food security and where we're not going to have this landscape that we treasure. As I say, it's it's not all done yet. I mean, this is the, the thing. And I mean, if... If I just briefly look at the difference between the administrations, you know, Liz Truss literally uh, would have completely liberalised. So the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Deal, beef as an example, they were going to open negotiations at 100,000 tonnes. That would have been a fully liberalised deal with Canada. And we were talking about Australia, but that would have done damage instantaneously. The deal that under Rishi Sunak's leadership, and he's keen to prove and show, and in many cases he has done, put in writing, that we will not now, not ever, be importing hormone-treated beef or chlorine-washed chicken. Now, if someone had told me that in 2020, I would have thought it was the biggest win we'd ever had. The deal with the Trans-Pacific countries is now 13,000 tonnes on beef. So you can see the differences. Had we continued with the trust government, we would have liberalised totally with those other countries. And actually, they have stuck to their word this time, and this is a very different deal. What's your assessment of where agriculture and farming stacked up in political priorities going over your career both as a farmer and as the leader of the NFU and also be interested in your your sense of their of their knowledge I mean I've talked to you before about and you feel free to say as much or as little as you want but I've talked to you before about during the Brexit thing about some of the sort of facts of life in agriculture that are very very basic that you seem to me were having to educate politicians about that's pretty scary it's very scary, especially when you rip up all the old rule books and you haven't written a new rule book as to you know what, what this means, not only for farmers, but what it means for each and every one of us. What's in our kids' lunches? What's in our fridges? What are we going to 
buy at the pub to eat. You know, it, it absolutely affects everything. And we've had, you'd look back to the repeal of the Corn Laws and everything that's happened in between that era and now, and it has been continual embracement and abandonment of whether food production matters. You know, the 1947 Agricultural Act, it was actually a Labour government that said, we cannot face starvation and rationing again. We are going to produce much more of our food here. We are at that moment in time now, right now, whereby we've legislated targets on the environment and we are saying we have to do the same on food production. Now, Rishi Sunak committed to that on the leadership campaign trail. It still hasn't happened. It really does need to happen. I think we should take a break. Back in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Let's maybe get into this question around the environment properly. So one of the big standoffs that you're facing, you've committed to net zero by 2040, and you've got these very prominent figures like George Monbiot saying that a lot of the carbon emissions in the country, particularly methane emissions, are coming out of agriculture. You've got him saying that in the uplands, uh, he refers to sheep as um, kind of, I don't know, woolly slugs and he believes that these areas should be rewilded. That's not just the reintroduction of you know, wolves and lynx, but the return of those areas to completely unfarmed landscape. And he seems to have a vision of a very intensively farmed lowland and essentially abandoning a lot of the agricultural land in the, in the rest of the country. So you're right at a very difficult moment where many environmentalists now have you in their sights. How are you going to navigate through that over the next 15 years? I don't think George Monbiot is, is a fair contributor for the environmental NGOs. I mean, George Monbiot is an animal rights activist, so he is wholly opposed to eating 
meat. Uh, and that's fine. That's his opinion. But he wants our food produced in, in factories. And I think most people out there, indeed, there's a huge amount of peer-reviewed science that even looking at the NASA work, you know, our diet really matters and the nutritional benefit of food that's grown in soil, meat and dairy as part of a healthy, balanced diet is, is absolutely critical. And, and that shapes the countryside that, that we have, the iconic areas of where uh, you're from is, is literally been shaped for millennia by farmers and farming and hefted flocks. So I think when we committed to net zero, this is a really exciting opportunity for a UK government to lead the world on how we do get to carbon neutral food production. And and we've got to do that. We can't do that without farmers. We can't do it here and we can't do it anywhere and, and, in the world. I, I guess just to push one more time, some of my farming friends would say the NFU has been good on the targets, but it hasn't been very good on laying out the steps on how we're going to get there because that's a hell of a target 2040. And of course, you're not going to be head of the NFU when that date comes along. When are we going to see the real steps and what's involved in getting to that target? So we've absolutely introduced the steps. There are basically three approaches for us. We're working with a farmer panel. Now, you easily get farmers across all commodities, across all land areas to come together, but we are benchmarking everything that that farmer panel is working on with a scientific and academic and, and community. And give us a rough sense of the kind of things you'd need to do to get to net zero, because it sounds a really big lift. So a lot of it is focused on those sort of jargon words that you started off with, efficiencies, productivity. I would say it's climate smart farming. It is about decreasing your food production footprint, but it's about producing producing more on the back of it. So really focusing on how do we tread lighter with our food production. You've got in livestock now, you've got probiotics, you've got feed additives, uh, you've got different breeding genetics, shorter finishing times, all of those lessen the footprint. And indeed, if every every cow in the world was as efficient as one in the UK, um, we'd only need half the number of cows. So, so we're leading already with our emissions. And don't forget, Farming here is very much part of the natural carbon cycle, grazing grass that we can't eat, producing a high quality grass-based protein that is really good for the soil and, and really good for us with the, the high quality meat and dairy that it's producing. Then you've got nature-based solutions. So that is definitely hedges, trees, locking down, pulling back more carbon into the ground. And then you've got rene renewable energy effectively. And to a certain extent, the bioeconomy, I've got members who are uh, got biorefineries, so they are tomato businesses making all of the packaging out of the tomato plant. Hugely exciting stuff. Um, so this is an exciting time, not just with what we eat, but for green energy, for fibres, and it can happen. What was your reaction to Rishi Sunak's recent speech about climate and net zero? I think there was a lot of misunderstanding, or for me anyway, and how it was presented. So, the, you know, there was talk of, well, we're not going to be having a meat tax. Well, I hadn't realised that they were going to be having a meat tax. Um, <laughs> so, so there were things like that that I just, uh, I just didn't quite get because we hadn't heard about a meat tax. And you so hadn't heard you were going to get You just thought, you just thought the head of the NFU yeah. would have heard about a plan to put tax on meat. And would have had a lot to say. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... It, it was strange, but what we want to happen is the right policies, the right incentives in place so we can get to net zero. So we are not taxing people. And this is absolutely within the art of the doable. And that is what we've been working on, the policy solution for how we achieve it. NFU and King Charles, I'm, I, I have always seen him as being a really interesting advocate for nature-based solutions for farming in Britain, for small farmers. 
Do you reflect a little bit on what his legacy's been over the last few years and the ways that he's thought about farming and supported farmers? It was interesting, wasn't it? The royal visit to France and the reception that he got. I mean, I, I do think he's been an extraordinary leader in this area because he was talking about it long before it was trendy and fashionable and actually faced a lot of ridicule. I've been to Highgrove. I've seen the changes and it, and it's difficult farming up there on the Cotswolds. You know, it's brash. It's, 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 it's hard yards of farming. And he has never deviated from that path. And so, of course, when he talks now, it is with total sincerity, but not only sincerity, it is with complete knowledge of what he's talking about. And, and I think that is what now is putting him in such a good place as, as a leader in this area, because not only has he believed it for his entire life, he has acted on his beliefs and delivered on his own land. He needs, he needs to tidy up the swimming pool at Highgrove, though. I've swum in that. It was, it was a bit murky. I didn't get to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the cows and the sheep, but that was all. <laughs> now, can we talk about, about um, COVID and how that was for the farming community? And also, clearly, they saw it as a health crisis. Do you think the government understood that it could quite quickly have become a, a food supply crisis as well? And, and did you worry about where that was heading? So there was a moment, I'd just been elected into my second term and we went into lockdown. So we'd had our elections at the end of February, went into lockdown in March. And I think there was absolute panic uh, across government that supply chains were going to grind to a standstill. This is 70 million people very nearly on an island, pretty reliant on, on imported food from Europe. And when it looked like food supply chains were going to break down and we weren't going to be able to get food in here. And indeed, you know, it wasn't just panic buying of loo rolls. People were panic buying many things. So we were running out of, of flour. We were running out of milk. So the early days were tumultuous and we were on a war footing effectively. We were working very closely with uh, DEFRA colleagues. Of course, a, a big lack, I think, of, of commercial experience in departments. We you know, obviously worked as members of the EU. Who was, no, who was in charge of DEFRA at that time? George Eustace. Okay. Um, and, and George is quite an interesting figure here, isn't he? Because he was in DEFRA with me. So even though there were a lot of turnovers and change, I mean, he was there for a long, long time. I mean, I guess he was hanging around on and off for seven, eight years, which is very unusual. He was in there for a long time. But, but of course, nobody saw this coming. And it was pretty scary. And I think there were many in government. And I certainly had some messages from some of them basically saying, you can have whatever you want. Did you take uh, it? <laughs> I did. But it, of course, it ended and things changed. And actually, it was a huge credit to, to everybody that food supply did come back on track, distribution did work, and a united effort from farm to fork to feed the nation. You know, we were, as farmers, we were the key workers. We were never the NHS, but we were feeding the nation. And we did together, I think, extraordinary things. And for a time, it brought people so much closer and government so much closer to the importance of food. But these things never last long and that mm. lesson mustn't be forgotten. Rishi Sunak's non-existent tax on meat notwithstanding, how do you see the, the future of meat? Are you encouraged or worried by the kind of trend towards veganism and vegetarianism. Do you think we actually understand what that means in terms of food production within the UK? 
So here in the UK, people's diet will be what people's diet is. The, the medical advice right now is meat and dairy is a really important part of a healthy, balanced diet. But none of us, whatever age we are, are eating enough fruit, vegetables and pulses. So it's absolutely the case that meat and dairy is part of a healthy, balanced diet. And here in the UK, when we don't have feedlot systems, we're not feeding mountains of grain to our animals we should be exporting what we're not consuming. And that's really, really important because, you know, if we put in reduction targets here, don't forget that was that was another focus when Henry Dimbleby was leading the food strategy, you know, it was about reduction targets. We were absolutely saying, look, we can we can get better here, we can be climate smart agriculture, but we mustn't restrict what we're doing here. We can do it better, but let's export to other countries that don't have the luxury of the maritime climate that we do. One of the weird things, which is typical of British approach to environment policy, is that we offshore our problems. We feel smug about ourselves, but what we actually end up doing is pushing the problem onto New Zealand farms, Australian farms, or pushing the, the carbon emissions off to China. And then we continue to consume the things here. Absolutely. So I, I remember having this argument with the chief executive of the Lake District National Park, who was saying, you know, it'd be much better if we don't have our sheep on the grass here. I'm thinking, well, what else is the grass going to do? And we end up importing New Zealand lamb in and doing enormous damage to the New Zealand landscape so that we can feel smug about our own landscape, but we're still eating the lamb. So I think one of the nice things about onshoring is that we're taking responsibility for our own production rather than just consuming other people's production. But, you, you know, many people listening to this will have faced the rationing of eggs. We had a billion less eggs produced last year compared to 2019. And yet the British medical advice is if you're elderly, if you're young, if you're pregnant, eat British lion mark eggs. And yet we've been importing eggs from, from Italy. So we need to get our, our egg numbers back up. Salad shortages. I mean, everybody remembers all the talk of, you know, Therese Coffey saying, well, have a turnip and eat seasonally and don't have a tomato. But people want, rightly so, to be able to, to buy what they want when they want. And we can produce a lot more of that here. So that's the key thing. What we're good at, you know, it isn't just about proteins. The real challenge right now is being so reliant on Spain to produce all of our salads, so reliant on Morocco. A weather event in Morocco, none of the salad got here. We should be producing it here. And I visited a glass house not that long ago, totally sustainable, pulling hot water out of a city using uh, heat pumps and not reliant on gas. We could be producing all of the nation's peppers, all of the tomatoes, pretty much all year round. Why would we not want to do that? And where do you stand on meat that's getting manufactured synthetically? It's unaffordable. Uh, in the first instance. So it's it's very costly. And I think there are huge concerns with the health implications of things that have been modified that we are not genetically keeping up with. So our food system has changed so much in the last 50 years. And as we go to the next level of synthetic meats, stem cell technology that is producing these synthetic meats, this, this is our bodies. There is nothing more important that we do than, than feed ourselves. And, and what we eat is what we are. And it just appalls me that the lack of work that has gone into what is this going to do to our bodies? We face huge challenges now with type 2 diabetes, with cancer, a lot of it linked to highly processed food and the fact that we are eating too much of it. So there are big health implications here. And it's all about taking food seriously and, and really understanding and educating in our kids and our schools to be passionate about what they're eating. What I've heard in pretty much everything you've said is a sort of sense of real frustration that. 
people in power and people in politics generally don't really get this stuff, despite all the debate that goes on around it. And I'll be honest, I watched part of your conference this year because I was quite interested because Keir Starmer was going to be speaking at it. And I'd be interested in your impressions on him, but I, I couldn't believe Therese Coffey's speech. I sort of felt that she's, speech, she's, she's in charge of your sector. I don't know. What was she doing? And did Therese Coffey just remind us? She's the, the sector she's state in for, charge of this yeah, sector. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, is she deliberately being insulting by not taking you seriously or what? It was a weird time. Um, I, I met with her two days later and she said, could I, could I come and have a, a drink and a chat and, and go through things? And, and that was good. And that settled things down. But it, it did feel a, a very odd time. R- remind Look, us of the speech. I don't think all listeners will have heard it. Alice is more of an NFU geek than maybe some of our listeners. <laughs> what, what happened in that speech? What, what was it that was, was upsetting well, for members? Yeah. I, I think the challenge was that that we'd face this extraordinary situation with eggs. So it was, it was, you know, front page news. And that day we'd faced literally every newspaper out there was talking about salad shortages and rationing of salad. So Asda was the first one to say, you can only have two bags of lettuce effectively and, and, and six tomatoes. And so we were facing rationing of salads and there was no nod to any of that at all. And, and actually in the q and I, I challenged her on market failure in the egg sector and said, well, what were they going to do about it? Because within the Agricultural Act, there are powers given to the UK government to deal with these issues. And she said, well, she didn't see it was market failure. And I said, well, there's a billion less eggs. Clearly, it's market failure. And I've got members that are going out of business because they are not getting a return back to the farm gate for what it's costing them. So, she, so it was a very odd time. Can we bring you on to Keir Summers? So what is it that you'd really like to see if you were writing a manifesto for Labour, given that at the moment it looks likely that they'll win the next election? What would be a great manifesto from them for farmers? What, what would you like to see for farmers out of Labour? So the, the big thing that is missing is we've legislated targets for the environment, clean water, tree planting, taking land out of production, water quality, all really important things. And, I, and I'm absolutely fully in favour of what's happening. But we've got targets on house building. Labour's got targets on house building. It's got targets on green energy. What we don't have a target for is food production. And so the first thing I would like to see them do is say, look, producing food matters. Feeding the people of this country matters. We are going to set a self-sufficiency target and we are going to make sure that that we stick to that. And we're not going to be producing pineapples and lemons here, but there are many things that we should be producing here. If they do that then we need a comprehensive food strategy that delivers all of that. And we'd also like to see presumably something more on subsidies. I know the Lib Dems have come forward, so they'll put a billion pounds into Elms. Is that enough? Sorry to explain to people, this is part of the environmental subsidies, it's part of keeping the uplands alive, part of the story that we're talking about with upland farms. It's not just about food production. Often the food production doesn't really help a small family farm in the uplands because it will favour the more efficient. Well, what would you like to see in terms of commitments to these subsidy schemes from Labour? Well, obviously, it's to be uh, appreciated and applauded that the Lib Dems have have come out and offered more money. I I think, though, when you're not in power, offering more money is quite easy to do. Or if you're the Lib Dems. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. We're apolitical and we have to work with everyone uh, and enjoy it too. But, you know, it's about the plan. The plan has been what's missing. And we need a, a plan and a strategy. And that has to start with saying, food matters. And, you know, we have to treat environment and food production as two sides of the same coin, not separate them. They're continually being separated. We've got to, we've got to have both. That's what I'd like to see Labour do. So, and and what, just tell me what the, the sense that 
from your members at the conference that Keir Starmer emanated and what your, your perception was? Well, the extraordinary thing was that his announcement was actually one of Rishi Sunak's policy proposals when he was on the campaign trail. So he talked about 50% in public procurement. That's our hospitals, schools, prisons, military, 50% of that being British. And and that was what Keir Starmer announced because Conservatives have failed to announce it. So that seemed quite odd, but it's appreciated. But we still don't have those things that Rishi Sunak committed to, and I think he, knowing the man that he is, he will have gone into it with a lot of thought, a lot of detail behind it. So he committed to 50% of British. Don't forget, this is not new news. For Mm. the London Olympics, we were 100% British. I mean, it's what a lot of countries do. And it's an important marketplace. So £4 billion worth of marketplace. And Keir Starmer announced it because the Conservatives hadn't. So as I say, I'd like to see Keir go further and announce a target. But he was empathetic the audience liked him. What is lacking with Labour at the moment is policy. You know, we need to see more policy. We need to see a plan, a proposal um, that is meaningful. These are businesses that mm. I represent. And just on that, because, you know, I, I sort of said, do you see yourself as a, as a union leader? But you are the leader of a, a major organisation that is trying to influence public policy. How do you approach something like a, a coming election? How do you try to get the ideas that you've just outlined to Rory? What do you do to try to get the parties to do that? Because as you know, even despite Boris Johnson basically burning his own manifesto, manifestos still do matter. So how do you get stuff into the manifesto? I think the really exciting thing now is that everybody is recognising that the rural vote matters, the farming vote matters and the people who are associated to rural constituencies. They are feeling hard done by. They are feeling left out of a sort of a metropolitan urban policy portfolio, if you like. So uh, I think it's an exciting time in that the rural vote matters. It will be competitive in the run up to the next election. So we are at the moment producing our own manifesto. Now, you know, I don't run a dictatorship, so this isn't and can't be, can't be my manifesto. It will be literally across all land areas, across all sectors. We will bring that manifesto together. We are and always do engaging with Labour, with Lib Dems, with the Green Party, and really trying to tick the boxes off. Will you sign up to this? You know, we've got huge implications with trade, with access to people, with the future policy. So we will have done and are doing a huge amount of work on our manifesto, and then we will be trying to get it off. And our our conference next February, which will be my last, uh, there'll be a hustings between all parties, and that will be, you know, we'll have well over a 1,000 members in the ICC. That will be my members' chance to really challenge politicians about what their plan is. Farmers often from the outside seem to have these very strange kind of almost enviable lives. I mean, there's a, a real heroism to farming, and I think, I guess, Jeremy Clarkson, everyone's already given much more prominence to these issues. But it's also a tough and quite lonely job, isn't it? And I sometimes felt my constituents that we underestimated some of the stress and pressure on mental health, on on suicide. Do you want to reflect a little bit, along with all the, the great successes in farming, of which there are an enormous amount, what some of the stresses can be? So I think probably my saddest and lowest moments in this job are are hearing stories effectively from our members about men and women that have committed suicide. It is a lonely job, it is an isolated job, and it is a stressful job. Help us understand what makes it stressful. What are the kinds of things that often bring stress to farmers? I think, you know, if you imagine you've got your office outside, so you are at the mercy of all weather events. And 
you are, if I look at my own business, you are on call. We're a livestock business. You are on call 24-7. And there could be debt in a small uh, farm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, not just small businesses, but farming is long term. So you are planning for a long term. You're obviously planning often for the next generation to be coming into that business, whether you're a tenant or a landowner. So I, I think it, it's isolated. Certainly at the moment, huge pressure because there's been such lack of plan and there's been such differentiation effectively between different leaders. So lack of plan hasn't helped. Uncertainty is the last thing farmers want. And you are working in, in a very isolated and, and lonely environment often. So it is a big issue and we need to do much more to get help into rural areas. You know, we're always talking about it's okay not to be okay and to speak up, but but what then? What's the next steps? How can we provide the help that is needed? And we've got great charities. The Farm FCN, the Farm Crisis Network, does a huge amount, RABI and others, to help in this area, but there's much more we can do. Can I just, with my mental health campaigning hat on, say that commit suicide suggest suicide is still a crime or a sin. I think that's absolutely right. And I've been working with an amazing couple, Andy and Linda Eden, whose son, uh, Len, took his own life, aged 22. And Andy talks about achieving positive mental health mm. all the time. Mm. And so our language really needs to learn from people that have been through what the Edens have been through. And they've just driven a tractor right across the country and hearing them talk about their son. But they continually say, don't talk about mental health negatively. What we're all striving for is positive mental health. Mm. Can we talk briefly about Ukraine? Because I know you, you've also got connections out there and have been involved in what's going on with farmers there. So just talk us about that. It's hard to sort of put into words how challenging the situation is. So Maria Dudak, who's the uh, Ukrainian Agrarian Forum director, I've had a lot of conversations with from day one. Um, we helped bring Maria and her sons over to, to have a holiday in Wales, as she said, to get them out of a war zone. And, you know, all the thoughts and the, the you know, you can't imagine what it's like when you are living effectively in shelters. And she's still doing her job as a director. So everybody's feeling the impact of Russia invading Ukraine and what it's done to cost inflation of farm inputs and, and food inflation. But when you hear firsthand from what these farmers are facing, they're facing you know, farms that have been targeted by the Russians, cows that are literally burnt alive, fields that are mined, and they are continually, as a nation, working through, working through, working through. And you know they are still... Um, planting, harvesting, doing everything they can to keep farming in a situation that the rest of us cannot even begin to contemplate. So what I've heard from Maria, it really makes the, the hairs on the back of the neck stand up. It's, it, it makes me feel enormously grateful to be here. Lynette, you've, you've had the most extraordinary life. You've you know, completely, presumably blew away your father's expectations. He was never expecting you to lead the NFU. You've, you've gone through so many different changes in your life. You're now coming to the end of your time. At the NFU. At the NFU. <laughs> the NFU. You're not planning a <laughs> sudden demise. <laughs> it's just that Rory did talk on the, on the podcast recently about how he was, he was having a dream about just about to be guillotined. So I don't know whether that's still in his subconscious. <laughs> oh yeah, there's too much dreaming going on in the podcast moment. Um, no, so, and, and you're, you're young, as, as, as Alice is pointing out. So give us a sense of how you think about closing off 10 years, how you think about legacy. And I guess most interesting for listeners, what does someone like you do? Do next. What do you do if you've made it to the top of this very interesting thing? Had, I think, an incredibly interesting and fulfilling life. And then 
suddenly in your mid-50s find yourself thrown off into a different world? I never set out to have a role in the NFU. Uh, my passion was to farm. And so I've been effectively 10 years not being able to farm in a way that I would have been. So I really look forward to going back to the farm, to continuing to to build my my business. There are things that I desperately want to get over the line in the next five years. And, you know, when I came into this role, it was so frustrating for it all to be about the first woman. As a woman, all you want to be seen as, as the best person to do that job. So my focus and probably what matters more to me than anything else is I want people at the end of my tenure to think, yeah, you know, she was a woman, but she did as good a job as, as any of the men. And, you know, it'll be great to have another woman. The thought of ever dropping a ball or ever doing anything wrong and people saying, oh, don't you remember that time when we had a woman leading the NFU? <laughs> I mean, that that for me, I will do and have done everything I can to avoid that. Success will be when it's not newsworthy to be a woman. That is what I want my legacy to be. Will you try to have any impact upon who succeeds you or will you... Will you step aside in that process? We are proudly democratic. So yeah, our, uh, our, lots of organisations <laughs> claim to be so, yeah. So I have been elected into this role for my third term. I had to get 75% of the vote. So the next president of the NFU will be elected into that role. But I, whoever the next president is, you know, the NFU is an extraordinary, dynamic, diverse organisation. And, you know, it's been around for well over 100 years. Mm. I'm very confident it will be around in another 100 years and doing what it does. Well, listen, thanks for all your time. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, if I were a member of the DEFRA team or the shadow DEFRA team, I would listen very, very carefully to some of that because I thought she had some very interesting analysis and ideas. I mean, I, I, I've obviously known her for some time because I was a, a DEFRA minister. And it's amazing seeing how much the NFU has moved and what it's had to adjust to. I mean, she's talked about COVID, she talked about Brexit. There's also been a massive revolution in its approach to environmental policy. There's stuff we didn't get into. I mean, 40% of our rivers are in bad condition. Um, th there are a lot of questions around you know, how much polluters should pay, how much farmers should be responsible for the state of our rivers. But goodness, she's come a long way. And it's really interesting things. She's not quite a politician, but she's got to act almost like one, hasn't she? She's pretty political, I'd say. I, th I think she knows how to influence. I actually do think if, you know, she said they were going to sort of produce a big document and call it their manifesto. I think they probably should do that. They have to do that for their members. But then I think they need to really crunch it down and just try and say to the parties, you know, if you want to deliver on your promises, this is how you're going to do it. And you were saying, I mean, I'm being a bit unfair because you were saying just off air to her, but I think you were absolutely right that what she needs to do is she needs to read the party manifestos, realise that it's a page basically on agriculture and she needs to write that page of A4. What are the seven or eight bullet points that yeah, they need to deliver? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe what she should do is put the podcast when it comes out, put it into chat GPT and say, if you had to turn this into a one-page manifesto <laughs> for the current Labour leadership, what would it say? <laughs> but I wonder if she would have been a... Because she was a very successful jockey. Yeah. You know, she ran, she rode quite a lot of winners. And she trained with one of the most famous trainers yeah. in Britain. yeah. Huge flat successes, jump successes. No, I, th I think that's another thing. I wonder whether part of her focus and part of what's made her, she didn't have a conventional academic career, but I think something you write about in your book on leadership, the way in which 
you know, very high level elite sport can actually be amazingly good for forming character and confidence. Oh, Rory's moving on to sport. Oh, we'll get you, we'll get, we'll get you interested eventually. No, I thought she was, I thought she was very, very good. Whoever follows her, I think she's quite a hard act to follow. And it was a big thing. I mean, she wasn't, when I was in DEFRA, seen as the front runner. She was a slightly surprise candidate to come mm. through. Mm. And as she says, she, she comes from a smaller farming background. But goodness, she's got a problem. I mean, I, you know, she's being polite, but at the heart of the NFU are massive standoffs between different interests and every decision she makes. If she says one of her phrases where we're going to produce more food on less land, that has big implications sure. for farmers up in the uplands who are then going to end up facing rewilding. I, I did debates with her. One of the reasons I know her is we did a debate against George Monbiot together a few years ago on this whole rewilding debate. I wonder whether she's right. I mean, she's sort of saying, well, you know, George Monbiot is out in the extreme and most of the British public are, are with her and want to see a farm landscape. But it, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because I, I didn't get enough into how they're going to appeal to the next generation. I suspect people in their teens, early 20s, are a constituent she's really going to have to reach out to. And I think they're more skeptical. They're much more sympathetic towards more radical environment climate policies, which can be difficult for farming. Mm. Although she is a big sort of promoter of, um, of fruit and veg. If maybe this is me mis misinterpreting what she said. She's not an evangelist for more old-fashioned traditional farming. I think she's kind of moved with the times pretty, pretty well. It, it is also, I mean, we, I didn't, you know, it's obviously a cliche that she bought her, but I do think that Jeremy Clarkson's program on Amazon has transformed sympathy and interest in farming in Britain. I think it's incredible really? media impact. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you haven't watched it, it is the greatest, funniest program. But what he does is by mocking himself, just show how difficult a farmer's oh, life okay. is. Interesting. Rory Stewart praises Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> Jeremy, I know you listen. Uh, so you welcome anytime. We'd love to have you. Rory, thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs>